Good morning. My name is Stephen. I, um, I used to work with uni students when I uh, first went into ministry way back. And um, one day I, I met this student whose name was called Dararoth, who had um, an interesting story as I got to know him. He'd migrated from an Asian country and he'd moved to Sydney. And growing up, he'd lived in a, a house with other migrants. Apparently, there was something like 20 of them crammed into this house. But his story was quite amazing. He'd, he'd learnt English. He'd been through high school. He got into pharmacy at Wagga at the uni there. And as I was chatting, chatting with him and hearing some of his story, I quickly realised he was in trouble. He'd, it turns out, been giving unwanted attention to one of his uni lecturers. You know, that's probably putting it politely, joining the dots together. He was stalking her. And the word from the uni to him was, was really clear. He'd been told he was not to make any contact with her at all. Now, in my mind, what, what the uni was saying to him was, was very clear, very reasonable. And I was trying to help this guy that, that I'd just barely met to see that the word from the university was not to be taken lightly. And I don't know what he was thinking, but he didn't do what the uni told him to do. He didn't turn up to a house or anything like that. In his mind, what he did do wasn't even that big a deal. He was just talking about her online in one of the uni forums of all places, but that was against what the uni had specified. And boy, did the weight of the uni come down on him. He was removed from being a student. He had to move back to his overcrowded house in Sydney. And after that, I don't know what happened to him. I lost contact with him. But all these years later, I still feel bewildered and frustrated by him. Because nothing I said to him seemed to make any difference at all. I just couldn't get through to him you know, to treat women with respect to start with, I couldn't even get through to him just to listen to the uni. To me, it was like he was throwing his education away for no good reason, all because he wouldn't take the word of the university seriously and and stop what he was doing and, and turn back from the edge. Well, today in 1 Kings, which we're going to come to in just a little moment, we come to something that's a little bit like this. We come to bewildering, frustrating behavior where not the word of the uni is taken lightly, but where the word of the Lord is taken lightly and where the consequences are not just one person throwing their education away. The consequences are whole nations being led away from God because they refuse to take the word of the Lord seriously and stop what they're doing and turn back. For these last few weeks, we've been looking at this this uh, ancient book of 1 Kings, which is about events that happened 3,000 years ago. And so far, we, we've been following the rise of King Solomon to power and his amazing kingdom blessed by God. But last week, we saw that Solomon abandons God and, and we start to see some of the consequences of that. Most of the kingdom was torn out of Solomon's hand and given by God to another guy, a guy called Jeroboam. And last week, we didn't really get time to look at it, but it's important today. Last week, God said to Jeroboam at that time, 
in chapter 11 verse 38 that if Jeroboam obeyed him he said I will be with you I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you now can you see that that is a huge promise from God a dynasty as enduring as God the one God built for David but sadly Jeroboam was more interested in what God said next God said I will humble David's descendants because of this but not forever that's the bit that haunted Jeroboam that's the bit that got that got stuck in his mind where God says he still has plans for David's dynasty and we see this a little bit later in chapter 12 verse 26 where he thinks to himself the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam king of Judah they will kill me and return to King Rehoboam now that's a fair enough concern isn't it if you put yourself in the shoes of Jeroboam that's a fair enough fear to have he doesn't want his people still going up to Jerusalem where David's grandson sits as king and he's not worried because you know Jerusalem will get all their tourism business he's worried because his life could be at stake they might give Rehoboam their allegiance and Rehoboam wants him dead but rather than trusting what God had said to him look at what he does in verse 38 after seeking advice the king made two golden calves he said to the people it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem here are your gods Israel who brought you up out of Egypt one he set up in Bethel that's down near the border of Judah the kingdom to the south and the other in Dan way up in the north why is it that us humans go against the word of the Lord well sometimes it's just for convenience isn't it it's it's just easier but so often it's because we want to keep something else safe something else feels more serious to us more precious to us than what God has said you know my dream my success my self-expression or my lifestyle choices my security my prosperity my popularity my career or my romance my child my life now if that if that thing that is so important to me feels threatened by keeping the word of the Lord well that's when I'm going to find it really really hard to trust God and to obey him nonetheless and Jeroboam couldn't do it rather than take the word of the Lord seriously Jeroboam takes staying king more seriously and so he invents his own religion so that people don't need to go back to Jerusalem and back into the influence of their old king now actually what you should notice as we get into our chapter today is that Jeroboam's not reinvent not, not inventing a religion completely from scratch here he's tweaking their religion he's basing things off how they'd already been worship worshiping God in fact 
Probably Jeroboam would be offended if you said you're just inventing a religion. He'd say, no, 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 no. We're still serving the same God who brought us up out of Egypt. It's just that we're now doing it in Bethel and Dan. And he'd say, surely it's a good thing for there to be more locations to serve God, not less. We're church planting. That's all. And he'd say, you know, don't forget there's calves down in the temple in Jerusalem as well. I mean, the the bronze sea rests on 12 calves, right? We've just got two. Jeroboam, he doesn't necessarily think he's doing anything all that wrong. He's just making it more convenient for the people. And like so many kings and politicians, he just wants to use religion for his own political purposes in a way that's going to benefit everyone. But today we see what God thinks of what he's doing. That's what our chapter is about. Today we see what God thinks of what he's doing. We're about to read a a really strange story that's about this. And the first thing we we should hear as, as this part of the story is read, we should hear loud and clear, is that the word of God should not be taken lightly. The word of God should not be taken lightly. Saz is going to uh, read it in three parts for us. Thanks so much for doing that, Saz. And here's the first part. So, good morning. It's chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar, 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 this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burnt on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, Intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. It would have been a pretty intense scene. You know, there's Jeroboam having just built this altar, just built this house for this golden calf. He's gathered all the important people there around him, all the priests that he's made. And he's, he's there and he's trying to gather all the gravitas and, and seriousness that he can to make this feel like a momentous occasion. And then just as he's about to start the sacrifice, up wanders an unknown man, not a local, and he starts heckling from the crowd. He doesn't seek a private audience with Jeroboam. He did, in fact, he doesn't even address Jeroboam. Did you notice that? He addresses the altar of all things and he claims he's speaking the word of the Lord. He claims some future king is going to sacrifice the bones of people who make sacrifices 
on this altar. And he says all this as Jeroboam himself is about to make a sacrifice on the altar. It, it would have been very awkward for everyone. Now, I've done quite a few weddings in my time. And you know that bit where you, you kind of say, if any person here can show why they may not lawfully be joined in marriage, they should speak now or hereafter remain silent. No one ever speaks in that bit. Not even, not even the idiots who can't hold their tongues, you know, the kind of people who talk about carrying bombs as they're going through airport security. Not even them speak in that moment. They respect the moment. But this prophet doesn't respect this moment that Jeroboam's trying to create. It would have been very awkward and very tense. But with great courage, this prophet speaks up. And it's too much for Jeroboam. Even though he got where he is because a man like this dared to bring him the word of the Lord, and even though he was quite happy to receive that word from the Lord, Jeroboam doesn't want to hear this word from the Lord. And so he raises his his hand against this man, furious, and he says, seize him. But really, he's raising his hand against the word of the Lord. Now, I've never been king of God's people, of course. None of us have been. I've also never had God speak a, a direct word to me like, like he did here. But I still reckon I can put myself in Jeroboam's shoes. Because the, the word of the Lord says to me, you know, God loves you, Stephen. Trust in Jesus and you'll be saved. You'll never face God's judgment. And I can be all for that. You know, that sits well with me. But the word of the Lord also says to me, Stephen, deny yourself and follow Jesus. It says, Stephen, you can't serve both God and money. It says, put your, the interests of others, put the interests of others above your own interests. It says, don't you know your body is not your own? Honor God with your body. And like Jeroboam, when, when the word of the Lord is easy to take on board, I can, I can hold it happily enough. But when it's grating, when it's not really easy for me to carry, it's a bit awkward to hold on to. When it threatens something else that I really want to keep safe, then like Jeroboam, I feel the desire to hold it lightly. Do you? I helped someone move the other day and they had these lounge chairs that swivel and so they were, they were quite bulky and padded and, and really heavy because of the mechanism in there and so they were really hard to get through the doorway and, and as you're wrestling with that sort of thing everything within you just wants to throw it off and be, and be done with it I just had to stop myself now the word of the Lord can be like that sometimes it is so uplifting it's like it's carrying you but sometimes the word of the Lord sits so heavy on you, it's like it's crushing you and your dreams. And you know what? Maybe it is. Because maybe those dreams are what will ultimately destroy you. But the point is, these awkward moments, they're the real test. They're what show us where our heart really is at. When the word of the Lord clashes with what you want in life or how you were brought up 
or with what your culture is telling you is right or wrong, or when it threatens your comfort and your security or your prospects, your popularity, your deepest desires, are we going to hold the word of the Lord lightly? Or even then, are we going to take it to heart? And sometimes people say, we should take God seriously, yes. But we shouldn't confuse God with his word. Have you ever heard that idea? Yeah, take God seriously. But don't confuse God with his word. They say you can, you can take God seriously why, while taking the word of the Lord fairly lightly. But think about that for a moment. That's, that's like me saying to my wife, Kathy, I love you, Kathy. It's just that I'm not really that interested in what you've got to say. So when she says to me, you know, Stephen, when you do this or that, it hurts my feelings. Can you please not do that? And I say to her, shh, remember, darling, you say it best when you say nothing at all. <laughs> Sounds romantic when you sing it, but when you say it out loud, it just doesn't have that effect. We all know that's rubbish. Taking the word of the Lord seriously is the same thing as taking God seriously. Taking the word of the Lord lightly is the same thing as taking God lightly because that's the way relationships work. Jeroboam, he held the word of the Lord lightly. And look at the path that this led him down. It led him down to a point where he finds himself raising his arm against the word of the Lord. And believe me, there's no more dangerous place to be than with our puny arms raised against the living God. Either threatening him or trying to wave him off or shushing him. In that moment, we saw Jeroboam gets a, a taste of of how dangerous his attitude towards God is. His arm shrivels up and he can't pull it back. God can't be silenced. And Jeroboam's power is seen for what it is. Nothing compared to the power of God. And he sees this, at least for a moment anyway, because look at what he says in verse 6. Then the king said to the man of God, intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. And his words betray him in this moment. Intercede with the Lord, your God. Even though God had said he'd walk with Jeroboam, if only Jeroboam would listen to him, here Jeroboam speaks the truth. He's not interested in walking with God as his God. And yet, surprisingly, God heals him, even though he doesn't deserve it. Because that's the kind of God God is. He's always wanted what was best for Jeroboam. And if only Jeroboam hadn't turned away from him, he would have given him what was best for him. He would have blessed him. Do you see the tragedy here? The tragedy of this is that so often it's our attempts to keep things safe that lead to their downfall. When we hold the word of the Lord lightly because something else is more precious to us, so often we distort that thing end up destroying what God would have given us in his own time if we took his word seriously. And just like for Jeroboam, God is there warning us with his power, wooing us with his mercy, giving us every opportunity to stop, 
stop taking his word lightly and turn back to him. But back to our story. Because does Jeroboam turn back to him? Will he turn back? Well, we see the answer in our next part of the story. And we also see that in this part of the story that many will try to get you to turn from the word of the Lord. So I was just going to read for us chapter 13, verse 7 to 24. Thanks, us. The king said to the man of God, Come home with me for a meal and I'll give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, Even if you were to give me half of your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, You must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and didn't return by the way he came to Bethel. Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. Their father asked them, which way did he go? And his sons showed him which way which road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree and asked, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, come home with me and eat. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I've been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to the house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment, the command the Lord that your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was left lying on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. This courageous prophet listens to the word of the Lord. He walks into enemy territory and then without fear of the crowd or the king, he speaks the word of the Lord clearly, powerfully, obediently. And where does he end up? Dead on the side of the road. While the people he warned end up alive, healed and doing pretty well. It's irritating, isn't it? This story. And it's supposed to be, and it's supposed to draw our attention to some important things. So let's keep going and have a closer look. Did you notice at the start how Jeroboam's attitude towards the man changes? He goes from wanting to seize him to wanting him to intercede for him 
to wanting something quite different in verse 7. The king said to the man of God, come home with me for a meal and I will give you a gift. Now, does this ring warning bells for you? Is it just me or does this sound a little bit like Jeroboam is saying, hop into my car and I'll give you a lolly? We're supposed to hear the warning bells, right? Now, Jeroboam doesn't actually say here, come home with me. He literally says, enter with me the house for a meal. He's probably not actually talking about his own home. He didn't live in Bethel anyway. He's talking about the house that he's built for God, the temple there. Jeroboam has changed tack from wanting to seize the man to something quite different. He now wants the man to compromise with him. He wants to get him, if not on his side, at least to show that tolerance is possible. If he can get him to enter the house and and eat a meal, then they can show together that really there's enough common ground. Really, when it all comes down to it, they worship the same God, and really, that all, that's all that matters. And it's not like the, the temple in Jerusalem can contain God anyway. And surely there's more than one way and one place to worship God. Surely they've got more in common than they've got different. Can you feel the, the attraction of what Jeroboam is saying here? It's just impractical to stick to everyone having to travel down to Jerusalem now in another country. Sure, in an ideal world but not in the real world. Both these nations live in this pagan world and so surely they're stronger if they band together. Has this prophet confused worshipping God with worshipping the word of God? Does this prophet really want to be a stickler for petty little rules that, that don't make much sense? Or does he want to be a team player on about the greater good? Have you ever felt that kind of pressure to compromise maybe from friends or workmates maybe from your adult children or even your husband or your wife maybe just from what you hear in the media or reading the news seeing movies it can sound really persuasive it can sound like it makes a lot of sense just compromise just hold the word of god lightly and it'll be better for everyone you included It's what many people tell us in lots of different ways all the time. And that's what Jeroboam is is trying to say to this prophet. But the prophet won't have a bar of it. He answers in verse 8, Even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. This man is not going to be turned from the irreversible word of the Lord. He won't be turned by Jeroboam's threats and he won't be turned by Jeroboam's seedy gifts either. Stick won't work, carrot won't work. The man of God sees through Jeroboam and he heads for home. But then, then we come across another prophet, a local His sons, we we heard, were at the altar with Jeroboam. So, in other words, they're on board. They're invested in what Jeroboam's doing. And this old man, he decides he's going to have a crack at turning 
this prophet from the word of the Lord. Jeroboam failed with his political stick and carrot. But this guy, this guy's willing to do whatever it takes. And so he meets the prophet on his way and, and he starts with virtually the same line as Jeroboam. Literally, he says, come with me to the house and eat. He's wanting the same thing as Jeroboam. He wants this guy to compromise and to send out the signal that what Jeroboam has created has got legitimacy. But the man of God, he gives the same answer. No way. But then unlike Jeroboam, this local prophet, he doesn't give up there. In verse 18, he says, I too am a prophet as you are. Jeroboam, he was easy to see through. He was a king. He was obvious. He wanted whatever was going to work for him politically. He didn't really care about the truth. But this guy says, hey, I'm different. I'm like you. I want what you want. And then he says, and an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord, this guy's good, right? He knows the lingo. By the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Literally, he says that the angel said to him, turn him. Turn him. And for the first time, he specifies which house. The angel said, to your house. So in other words, this prophet from Bethel, he's saying, oh, did you think I was trying to get you to eat in the house in Bethel at the temple? No, 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 no. No, it's not like that. I'm on your side. I want what you want. I want you to obey God. And God told me, you should come to my house and eat. Now, it's been quite a while since this guy from Judah, this prophet, has eaten or drunk anything. You know, riding a donkey might sound difficult, but after a couple of days, you're going to be pretty hangry and pretty thirsty. And suddenly confronted with this friendly face, a peer who understands what it's like to carry the burden that you carry. It all starts to sound pretty reasonable. Now, you thought God meant don't eat anywhere in Israel, but... Obviously, God just meant don't eat in the temple. That makes more sense, actually. And just like that, he starts to be turned. And just in case we might miss that this is also a kind of get into my car and I'll give you a lolly kind of moment, the writer says to us, but he was lying to him. Think about that. Is, is that allowed? Surely you can't lie about stuff like that. Surely if, if someone says they're also a follower of God, you should be able to trust them, right? Is this story starting to get under your skin yet? Well, it gets worse. Because the courageous, faithful prophet who spoke the word of the Lord ends up tricked. He ends up himself taking the word of the Lord lightly. He ends up turned. And who speaks the word of the Lord to him? The very person who destroyed him. God speaks through the prophet from Bethel. It feels unfair. It's unsettling. And it's these kind of moments in scripture that tell you to sit up and, and pay attention. Because what we see here is, is that it's not people that give the word of the Lord validity. It's not people or their roles that 
own the word of the Lord. If a person turns from the word of the Lord, even if they're tricked to turn, there's no special class of person who are above the word of the Lord who can take it lightly if that's what they want to do. No one owns the word of the Lord but God alone. The massive point of of this strange story is that the word of the Lord must never be taken lightly, whoever we are, Christian, unbeliever, minister, prime minister, bishop, it doesn't matter. But the reality is there are many people who will try to turn us. Some obvious, like Jeroboam, and some will be the nicest, kindest, most reasonable people you could ever imagine who are even genuine in their beliefs, smiling and lying to your face. This strange story is is all about turning from the word of the Lord, but it's also about turning back to God because of the word of the Lord. We're going to see this in the last part of the story. We're going to see that the word of the Lord should cause us to turn back to God. But just before it's read... Have you started to sense what's going on with these two nameless prophets? One from Judah, one from Israel? This strange story, it happened in history. But the reason that we've got it recorded here like this in the book of 1 Kings is because it's speaking a message from God that's actually bigger than just God's message to Jeroboam. What we're seeing playing out in these events is is like a real-life parable of what is playing out for God's people. This nameless prophet from Judah represents all God's people from Judah, the southern kingdom. And this nameless prophet from Bethel represents all God's people from the northern kingdom, Israel. And you see what this real-life parable is saying? It's saying the north is going to turn their brothers and sisters in the south from the word of the Lord. To their destruction. What happened in the story of these two prophets is going to happen in the story of all God's people. And that's exactly what we see across one and two kings. But this last little bit of the story that we're just about to have read, this last little bit of the story shows that there's a surprising twist. Thanks, us. Some people who passed by saw the body lying there with the lion standing beside the body, and they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet who had heard him, had brought him back from the journey, heard it, he said, It's the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which has mauled him and killed him, as the word of the Lord had warned him. The prophet said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me, and they did so. Then he went out, and found the body lying on the road, with the donkey and the lion standing beside it. The lion had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. So the prophet picked up the body of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back home to his own city to mourn for him and bury him. Then he laid the body in his own tomb, and they mourned over him and said, Alas, my brother. After burying him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. 
lay my bones beside his bones. For the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places in the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. The word of the Lord should cause us to turn back to God, but Jeroboam doesn't turn back. You know, like Dararoth, who I mentioned at the, at the start, Jeroboam is, is bewildering, he's frustrating. He won't stop and turn back to God. And the consequences are not being kicked out of uni. The consequences are that he leads God's people and himself to destruction. And the very things that he wants to keep safe, in the end, he destroys. Now, I keep saying this story gets under your skin. And, and I think here is where this story really gets under your skin. Because there is someone who turns back to God in this story. The dodgy, lying prophet who destroyed the courageous, faithful man of God. He has a change of heart. Did you see that? And at the end of this chapter, we, we see him mourning the prophet. We see him gathering a, a small band around him who do the same. And we see him no longer trying to defend the altar that Jeroboam had built. Instead, we hear him saying that the message that the prophet declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel will certainly come true. That's not a particularly satisfying end. But in the end, we see this man turned by the word of the Lord. Now, remember, this is a kind of real life parable. And so it it ends with the tiniest glimmer of hope that maybe the word of the Lord might accomplish what had happened with the prophet from Bethel more widely with God's people. Could it be possible that a whole nation of people could be turned back to God. Could that be possible? What we're going to see as we work our way through one and eventually two kings is that this question actually hangs over the whole lot. Could it be possible for a whole nation to be turned back to God? And actually, these books, they end with that question still hanging there unanswered. And all the way through history, this question goes on. Could it be possible for God's people to be turned back to him? It goes on unanswered until God speaks his word in a new and final way. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says to us, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son and what does he say to us by his son well jesus says in mark chapter one the time has come the kingdom of god has come near repent which means turn back turn back to god and believe the good news can god's people hear the word of the lord and turn back to him Well, Jesus says that is the reason he's come. That's what his coming is all about. And as Jesus' story plays out, he accomplishes 
a turning of a whole kingdom of people coming back to God. His life, his death, his resurrection accomplishes an undoing of the lies of this world, a turning back to God that can't be accomplished by anyone else across history, across the world. Even right now, there's a great turning back going on, a turning back to God, a turning back to truth, a turning back to relationship with God. A kingdom and a movement that doesn't hold the word of God lightly because we don't hold Jesus, the word of God, lightly. We hold to him as the saviour and the Lord we need because we know he's won for us already what we could never win for ourselves. And we know he keeps safe for us what we could never keep safe for ourselves. And so we turn to him and we keep turning back to him because we trust him. Let me pray for us. Father, we know our own hearts that when your word does not sit well with us, we're inclined to want to throw it off. Lord, you know us, you know that this is what we're like. And yet still in Jesus, you spoke your word to us so powerfully, so clearly that whoever comes to Jesus, whoever trusts him as Lord and Savior, you will never turn away. You will never turn away from us. Lord, help us to hold on to Jesus. To see that he is who we need, that he wins for us what we can't win for ourselves. And that he keeps safe what we can never keep safe ourselves. Lord, help us not to be those who hold your word lightly and so hold you lightly. Help us to see in Jesus that you have spoken powerfully and clearly. And move us by your spirit to turn to him and keep turning back to him as we trust in him. We pray in his name. Amen.